Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. A quick message before we get started. My name is Dylan, and I'm helping your host, Dr. Chris Kiefer, with a number of exciting projects to expand the podcast. Right now, we're working on a YouTube channel to have video interviews, transcripts for every episode, improvements to the website, and eventually, there will be ways for you to get involved yourself. Decouple will always be ad-free, so if you enjoy the show, please consider donating. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on the website, decouplepodcast.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the episode. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Alan Levinovich an associate professor of religion at James Madison University. He works at the intersection of philosophy, religion, and science, focusing especially on how narratives and metaphors shape belief. Today, we're going to be talking about his book, Natural, which explores the false faith that results from turning nature into God. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So Alan, I, I tend to try and get my, my guests, once I get their bona fides and accolades out of the way, uh, to do a bit more of a, of a personal introduction. Um, and I thought to give you a bit of a theme to follow with that, maybe introduce yourself, but you know, from the perspective of how the cultural phenomenon of, of turning nature into God or deifying nature has impacted your life personally. I think one of the places you most see this, and it impacts my life as a parent, is with people's choices around food and parenting more broadly. So you see this especially when parents are trying to figure out what's okay for their kids to eat or not to eat. And a simple, easy heuristic is naturalness. What, you know, natural foods. So they want to give their kids natural foods. This is usually a part of a binary between natural and processed or natural and artificial. Parents often, you know, sort of offhandedly say things like you don't want artificial coloring in your food. So mm -hmm. one of the places I see the the elevation of natural to the role of something like holy or pure is, is just in my everyday life as a parent. And, you know, I bite my tongue. I've learned now by now that um, if you're dealing with something quasi religious, you don't, you don't want to be a, an asshole about it, but um, it's, it's, it's something I notice a lot just in my everyday life as a parent. And then the other, you know, the other place that naturalness plays a role in my life, which is, I, I think probably has a lot in common with your viewers is that I love nature. Uh, you know, everyone loves nature and natural things in, in some form or another. I happen to be a rock collector, so I collect rocks and I also love plants. I have tons of plants um, and I, I like nature. I like going on hikes. I feel like I am, you know, I get sad or I feel like something's missing if I haven't been out in nature, quote unquote. And so those are two sides of the same coin which I try to explore in the book, which is on the one hand that I don't think we should worship nature. I don't think we should equate naturalness with holiness. But on the other hand, if I'm being honest with myself, I do love nature and mm -hmm. I do value naturalness in itself as something just, you know, meaningful and beautiful and magical and trying to balance those two in my own life is really important. Yeah. I mean, I, I can really identify with some of the things you're saying as a, as a parent, um, and, and sort of how it shaped, um, you know, our choices around childbirth. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a medical doctor. Um, I've delivered over 200 babies. I'm not an obstetrician or gynecologist or even a family doctor anymore. I practice emergency medicine, but I witnessed a lot of kind of medicalized birth. And, you know, when I was trying to make my choice about what specialty to go into, I've always had this ethic of, well, I want to, you know, take the skills I have and, and apply them where I can be most helpful and make the biggest difference. And, obstetrics really is probably the specialty. I mean, I guess you could make it a toss up with, you know, vaccines and infectious disease, but I guess in terms of practicing medicine, if you go to an environment where there's no modern obstetrical care and you bring obstetrical care, that's just, you know, has, has an absolutely massive impact. But I did find in sort of, um, you know, deciding with my partner about, you know, what choices we'd make, <clears throat> I'd seen a lot of kind of, um, bad things happen on the obstetrics floor. Um, and things I didn't want to see her go through. Um, and so, yeah, it was just, it was interesting the way that that was shaped. I mean, pressures around breastfeeding, even though that was really, really difficult for my partner. Um, you know, but, and, and, and it's, it's, it's been interesting as a doctor as well. I mean, just the language you use in the hospital around, you know, are you, are you, you know, breast bottle or both and the kind of shame um, mothers will feel 
to sometimes be like bottle now, you know, and it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's impacted me a lot. You know, um, one of, one of the things in terms of reading your book, um, I was thinking about, um, are you familiar with, uh, Noah Yuval Hariri's book, Sapiens? It's like I, that. Yeah. And so he talks about, you know, cause we're talking about naturalness and sort of what led to the, this term becoming, you know, uh, a construct for us. And, and he talks about like the cognitive revolution. I think it's, you know, 60,000 years ago. And perhaps one of the things that led us to sort of leaving nature in a way, um, this ability to form large groups and cooperate. And the basis for that being these kind of shared delusions, right? Whether it's, I mean, I don't want to offend anybody, but whether that's God or a nation, um, you know, or a currency or something like that. And it strikes me that, you know, nature is another one of these kind of concepts that we've invented. So, you know, in your opinion, um, you know, is it real and, and how is it a useful concept? Yeah. So a lot of people I encounter, and I talk about this a little in the book are, are of the nature is meaningless. Everything is natural. We're all made out of stardust. Humans are animals. So whatever we make is natural, that kind of school of thought. I don't, I don't think that is an especially helpful way to view nature or naturalness. I don't think it's invented, quote unquote. I mean, everything is invented, right? In the sense that all of our conceptual apparatuses are invented, but that, that doesn't mean there, there isn't an analog out in the world. So for me, I think it actually makes sense to talk about naturalness and unnaturalness on a spectrum. I think what we mean by that, generally speaking, is the extent to which human will has been involved in the organization of something. So we see all kinds of organization in the world, um, crystallography, uh, mm. organ systems, trees, whatever. And there's organization that I think we can attribute to willed human actions. And then there's organization that isn't. And to the extent that natural just means unwilled by humans mm -hmm. and unnatural means willed by humans, I think we can create a rough and ready spectrum in which everything that existed before humans were on earth, that's all natural. That's 100% pure naturalness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the dinosaurs are 100% natural in, the, in a way that cattle are not 100% natural. And cattle are more natural than plastic cattle replicas that might be outside of a, you know, I don't know, a, a, a farm gift shop or something like that. Sure, yeah, and that's yeah. simply because cattle, even though they were bred by humans, a, a, a much of their organization was not willed by humans. We didn't come up with organ systems uh, that nature um, is, is where those emerged from. And so I do think that that spectrum is useful. I think it's I think it makes sense to divide things up in that way, more or less. And I even think it can give us it can be a good hypothesis generating heuristics. So if we have a dis, you know, if 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 turtles are are all of a sudden laying eggs at the wrong time of year, it's reasonable to ask oneself, well, OK, this we put in humans put in a new city with a bunch of artificial lights. Mm -hmm. Is that throwing the turtles off after all they were in a natural environment that they evolved to synchronize with. Now there's this new unnatural environment. Could that be what's going on with their eggs? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I actually, I think that natural unnatural is useful. I think it maps onto something in reality. And for me, the problem is not the constant, the existence of the concept itself or something like that, that it's false or it doesn't exist like ghosts. Um, it is that, that we, that we understand it well and use it properly. That's, mm -hmm. so that's my main concern. I don't want to get rid of the idea entirely. I think like one of the anxieties that really gives nature and that concept of natural its potency is the fact that humans are, are kind of altering nature and, and fundamentally changing the planet. And I mean, it's, it's on a scale that when you think about us as these kind of tiny little microscopic ants may be seen from space with a telescope. I mean, we are, um, disrupting the, the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle. I think <clears throat> humans control about 53% of the world's kind of fresh water flows with our, with our reservoirs and dams and things like that. But of course, I mean, there have been natural phenomena that have also altered the atmospheric composition. You know, there's the great oxygenation event, cyanobacteria, the first mass extinction, <laughs> maybe we're starting the sixth. Um, but for you, is that like a, a key element, um, or is it more just that it exists on this kind of it's human or not um, again, because there's, there's been organisms that have caused massive change. Every organism is, is, is changing its environment to some degree, but I think it's the degree of the changes that we're seeing that culturally are, are making this really potent. And, and I guess I wonder like, 
if this is a phenomenon that's more common in societies that are now developed, right? And kind of like post-material places where we have the time to be concerned with nature and not just meet our basic material needs. Yeah, well, so the that that's a question I get a lot, which is, you know, is this some kind of uniquely modern post-technological cultural construct? And it is true a lot of a lot of people, historians of the concept, geographers have pointed out that our under our humans have different understandings of nature in different places at different times that at one point nature was wilderness and it was meant to be tamed and so that there was a fundamentally different attitude towards nature say in the you know 1800s or 1700s in 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 what's now the United States um and that's true those are all there, there are different attitudes towards nature that said in my own research i have found that cross culturally and transhistorically the idea that there are things that are so of themselves versus things that are willed by humans, that that mm-hmm. distinction and a kind of, and in some contexts, some people romanticizing the idea that what's so of itself is better. That's mm-hmm. existed everywhere. And, you know, I mean, in classical, you know, in ancient China, so I, you know, I, one of my, one of my areas of special academic areas, especially is classical China, um, classical Chinese thought and the word ziran, which literally means self so ziran, so so of itself um which is now translated as natural that was romanticized in some in some context right the idea that you want to go with what is ziran, that you should follow what is ziran, and that mm-hmm. when it, it that it, when you interfere with that that is to say when human will comes in and starts to organize things that that's a problem you know that's this is what uh you know over over 3000 years ago uh, or 20, 20, Chinese, 500 years ago. Chinese civilization is very old. But, I mean, was that coming out of, um, you know, an urban environment that had been modified or, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's possible, I guess. I mean, it's, you know, so if you go back far enough, when you have, like, I guess, because you went down purely to- nomadic, if you have purely yeah. nomadic hunter gatherers, right? So, so it's difficult to study, you know, at this point right now, conceptually, it becomes very difficult to study things. Language is a big issue. Yeah. There is an anthropologist who has studied conceptions of quote unquote nature. And what he says is that there aren't, there isn't as much conception of nature because you're moving through it all the time. And yet, there is a conception of places where we have been. Mm-hmm. versus places where we haven't been. So even nomadic peoples aren't just wandering randomly all over yeah. the place. They have seasonal routes. They come to view certain areas. You know, they know in this place at this time, there's going to be these animals. Um, they might even plant things in those areas. Not It's not agriculture, right? But it's, it's making an area uh, familiar. Um, mm-hmm. And so the idea of familiar versus unfamiliar areas, mm-hmm. which again, uh, to me, maps onto, in a certain way, natural, unnatural, does make sense. Now, were they romanticizing those areas? I, you know, I don't know. I'm not a, I am not an expert on the sort of thought I mean, world. A fishing hole gatherers. is like a pretty romantic spot, right? It's, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of value to it. Good things happen there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, our, our, our cultural context just changed our attitudes. And I want to speak to something else that you were saying too, which is that I think, I think that we are at a place right now uniquely where this, where this concept is really important because of the outsized effects that we have on yeah. the world. So it's not like we didn't have them. And it's not like people, you know, there's a book called the smoke of London, which was written in, I want to say like 1600 where they were worried about pollution and suggested planting trees to fight it and that sort of thing. Um, but it's very different. Now we have a consciousness of the scale that we're working on. That's really it's dramatic. And, uh, you know, I think about the comparison to other extinction events, right? Well, nature has killed off tons of animals as well, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's true. But the the time frame, I think, is a bit different. So if you watch extinctions happen over time, some species go extinct. They slowly go extinct as weather changes, for example. But they have a chance to evolve along mm-hmm. with it. So part of the extinction is is also bound up with evolution. Whereas I think what we're seeing right now is a very traumatic change to natural systems. And by traumatic, I just mean it's short, a short duration. So in a relatively short period of time, Mm -hmm. enormous changes are happening short compared to the other kinds of big changes that have happened in the past. And it's also true that things that we cause human beings, we just have a different attitude towards than accidents. I mean, we distinguish, you know, in our everyday lives, we say like, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Right. And we have a different attitude towards solving a problem you know, in a child, for example, or an adult, we have a different attitude towards solving problems that are willed by people 
versus problems that are emerging out of accidental behavior. And mm. to the extent that I we see the problems the natural world as emerging out of a collective willed, you know, ignorance about our effects on the natural world, we are understandably feel like we have responsibility in ways that we don't um, have the same attitude towards a, na a natural disaster that mm -hmm. emerges out of no will of our own. Yeah, I think it's interesting because there, there is a tendency, I think, to look at indigenous peoples as, as natural or existing in a natural balance, you know, with their environment. Um, and that there's at some point, right, there is a change where humans kind of leave nature behind. Um, and we'll tie that probably into some religious metaphor soon. But, you know, um, I'm a huge fan of James Lovelock and his concept of, of Gaia, you know, that there's the, the biosphere and the geosphere and this kind of homeostatic relationship influencing each other. And I think that gives a sort of, again, another kind of abstract sense of like, you know, us still fitting in and being a part of nature. Um, certainly we're, you know, unbalancing a lot of things and we'll see whether the earth has the homeostatic capacity to sort of preserve life and, and us as well. But I think it's an interesting question of sort of when did we depart from nature? And I'm thinking about, you know, as hunter gatherers um, killed off the megafauna, for instance, that had enormous impacts. You know, I think the uh, Stuart Brandt's really big on trying to bring back the woolly mammoth as a carbon sink in in the Siberian uh, tundra because they could turn it into grasslands that would sink more carbon than the trees that are there. And the trees, you know, that boreal forest is unnatural in the sense that it used to be trampled flat by, by this megafauna. So it's like, at what point did, did humans leave nature behind or is it just a matter of will? Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just trying to sort that out a little more in my head. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, I've been working on for a totally separate project. I've actually been looking into the megafauna uh, yeah. extinction and I am of the belief that we don't actually know what happened with them. I mean, having now looked at a bazillion studies and right. that I think, I actually think that the, the human, caused extinction hypothesis has gotten too much credit in part because we feel guilty now about the outsized effects that we're having on the environment. So I think we overestimate, generally speaking, our mm. effects on the megafauna of the past. And it's really hard to find out what went on because, you know, these like giant sloths or whatever, they're so big that the, the kind of evidence we would use for human interference with bones, the scraping tools and that sort of thing, you don't really see on oh, these wow. large animals. Yeah. And so it's, I mean, there's good arguments on either side. I think the reason people jump often to believe the human caused extinction is, is a function of the guilt that we're feeling right now. Um, yeah. And also of the fact that we really do have these, these enormous effects. Now that's not to say we didn't have effects on nature like this in the past. It's that, and this is where I think the indigenous people's um, question gets a bit complicated is I, I'm I'm not sure that it's not about the technologies as much as it is anything else. So given the ability to do certain kinds of things, humans just do stuff. Mm -hmm. And there are there are examples from indigenous peoples of indigenous peoples doing things that I think we would look at and feel are are somewhat questionable. The other thing is that there was a need for indigenous peoples to harmonize with nature, quote unquote, simply because their lives depended on it. Whereas at least for us in the short term, our lives do not depend on, on that kind of harmonization, if you will. What do you mean by that harmonization? Like I'm thinking about um, Charles Mann's like 1491 book, which documents life in the Americas prior to Columbus. And it's like, this was a yeah. completely managed landscape. You know, the Western uh, diseases basically cleared the land and, and there was this illusion of naturalness, but that was only because of, you know, this, this mass die off. Um, yeah, what do you mean so by what harmonizing? I, what I mean to say, yeah. So what I mean to say is that, so when you're talking about that homeostasis, that idea mm -hmm. that at a certain, when, when your technology allows you, for example, to ship things from one place to another, you can simply devastate an area of land and yeah. then move on. Sure. Um, and so by harmonize, what I mean is ensure that some kind of homeostasis in a particular area remains. You don't right. need that if you've got a train that can ship in all your lumber from somewhere. Now, that said, that said, these problems exist again to go to classical China. Um there is a text in the Mencius which was written, you know, give or take 300 BCE in which he's cautioning against overfishing and he says, "Look, if you if you use nets that are too thin, you're not going to have enough fish in the rivers. And if you cut down trees in all the seasons, you're not going to have enough trees on the hills. So obviously, even mm. at that time, people were sort of tempted yeah. to just cut down all the trees short term, move on. And then, uh oh, we don't have enough trees. Um, so humans have always, we've always been struggling with this, yeah. with this kind of thing. 
what, one of my favorite quotes, it's a, it's a Hans Rosling quote. Um, he's a, I always get his nationality wrong. I think a Dutch uh, public health doctor and uh, epidemiologist. And he said, humans never lived in, in balance with nature. We died in balance with nature. Right. And technology has kind of allowed us to transcend and, you know, increase the kind of carrying capacity of how many people can live on a certain amount of land and, and starts to sort of shift these balances and maybe cause these ecologic stressors. I think it's interesting when we're talking about like the great oxygenation event and the way that other life forms have dramatically altered the world. And I guess that's still natural. You know, humans have done that not through our metabolism, but through our technology. And, and for me, when I was reading your book, I'm like, well, what is the fundamental um, cause of a departure from naturalness? I don't think it's just like, you know, Homo sapiens or Homo erectus, I think we'd still think was pretty natural, even though he made fires and, you know, had a sharpened tool. But it's, it's the degree to which our technologies have continued to advance. And I think that's a lot of what's causing the anxiety and start, starting to, you know, make a lot of people question. I think it's a very kind of cultural phenomenon now. You know, people are like, you know, you're a uh, techno optimist and no, we need to sort of regress backwards. We need to atone for our, our kind of industrial sins, go back to the Garden of Eden. I mean, you're the professor of religion here, but those are really compelling, compelling narratives. Yeah, the the I mean, it is tech. I mean, technology, again, emerging out of human will. Right. So technology, another okay. another way to phrase technology is will the willed organization of reality. Um, and that extends to language, which is a technology that we've used to gather people together in certain places and the ability to communicate things over time, which allows us to develop plans that would never exist if we just had to memorize them, that kind of thing. So technologies of all sorts willed forms of organization, symbolic forms that emerge out of, from human beings. We do blame those for our problems. And I think a part of the reason for that is that they are, they are, they are at fault for many mm -hmm. of the, you know, the problems that we see in the environment, environmental degradation and that kind of thing. And so it makes sense to trace the problems to technology. The problem is that we confuse technology itself with, with evil. Um, mm -hmm. As if we couldn't have also developed technologies and deployed them in such a way that we wouldn't have had these problems. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't mean to sound like a guns don't kill people, people kill people sort of person. But the truth is that that well, well regulated guns wouldn't kill people as much. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, that phrase uh, the, of the of the anti gun control advocates is true. Right. I mean, guns don't kill people. The problem is. Guns distributed poorly or guns that people want too much uh, or guns that aren't regulated by law, right? In a sense, that is true. And the same is true for technology. It's not that technology destroys the environment and that we need to go back to a time before that. It's that we need to be aware of and concerned about the effects of technology on the natural world and then deploy it in a way that is that is effective and and and, underst and understood as something that we want to, to be careful with. And if we do that, I think technology can actually help us live in, in harmony with nature. It already does. You've just totally provided me with the soundbite that summarizes the whole raison d'etre of this podcast, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was, that was amazing. Um, I couldn't have put it better myself, even though I've been thinking about this for about a year now. Um, so getting back to that, um, I mean, it's interesting, that whole sort of like technology doesn't have a moral valence thing, but getting back to this, again, you're a professor of religion, I want to pick your brain about this, the kind of mainstream environmental narrative, correct me if I'm way off on this, but, you know, humans emerge from this Garden of Eden, we eat the apple of knowledge, aka maybe technology, that leads us to commit sins against nature, we need to atone for our sins by trying to return to the garden in some way, harmonize with nature, abandon industrial civilization, but you know, eating the apple and getting kicked out of the garden, it seems like it's a one-way street. You're not allowed back in. And I think that's kind of represented by the fact that the more that we've used technology, the more that we've um, expanded the carrying capacity of the land we can exist on, there's no way back. Like if we, if we try and go back to primitive, you know, I mean, there's some anti-civilization people like maybe Derek Jensen who are like, you know, we, we need to have a mass die-off and people need to be hunter-gatherers again. But short of, you know, an absolute genocide, there's really, there's no way to go back. We We have to continue to, problem solve every technology sort of solves a, a problem and allows us maybe to flourish a bit more but it creates a new problem is that a like it, it, it's when you when you think about it it's just such a complete overlay is that, is that too simplistic that judeo-christian overlay I, of, of the narrative i think that well that first of all it's not a judeo-christian ah, you know okay. or abrahamic i mean it is in a sense or the garden of eden itself is is abrahamic but the idea of uh, a time in the past when people didn't suffer, which then because of a violation of 
norms that are built into the world, we now suffer. That idea is just all over the place. It is, yeah. it is a very, very common idea because it's reassuring. It tells us that there is a way to live in a world in which there's no suffering mm-hmm. and that it's our fault that we have control over it. All we have to do is behave in a particular way, get back to some kind of thing and we'll be okay, right? Make the world great again. And, <laughs> and that kind of nostalgic narrative is very, very powerful. Yeah. The problem is, of course, that's not tr- it's not true. Um, the, 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 the nature is not, is, is amoral. It's norms do not align as much as anyone wants to argue that they do with our own. And the example I give in the book, and I, it's, it's sort of an easy one, but I think it's important is that nature just, just loved killing off humans under the age of five. That's just something nature did all the time, it did it in so-called primitive, uh, you know, hunter-gatherer. Like if you go back ten thousand years, I promise you, kids were just dying by the boatload, and humans decided they didn't want their kids to die as much. And to the extent that that impulse is unnatural but also good, we need to reckon with that. And what happened when we figured out ways to stop our kids from dying? Argue, you know, we got more humans, and now we're stuck. Now we are in a position where either. We have to use unnatural means to reduce our population and keep it down, or we have to allow for kids to die again. And neither of those is acceptable to us as humans, which is fine. So then it's obvious that we are beings whose basic moral norms, I think one of the most obvious ones, we don't want young children to die needlessly. Our moral norms don't line up with the natural world's norms, if you want to call them that. I think Mm. that's an illusion as well. So that's that's, that's how it is. I mean... Childbearing, you bring up the Garden of Eden. It's funny that of the two punishments, right? So the two, there are a couple of punishments. One of them was that Eve had to be some subservient to Adam, right? He will, your husband will rule over you. But right. the other ones that I want to talk about here, childbearing is going to be painful and you got to do agriculture, right? So this is very interesting, <laughs> yeah, yeah. interesting to, and it's going to be tough, you know, very, two very interesting punishments. One of them, I think the childbearing one just shows how difficult it is to understand. Why would, why would childbearing hurt? Like, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Why would we have, why would this hurt? This thing that's so, such a part of it, it must've been something we did wrong. It doesn't right, make sense right. that the, the world that gave birth to us, whether you want to call it God or nature, whatever ordering force gave birth to humans, why would it make our ability to give birth so painful? That doesn't make any sense. Well, I, we'll have to ascribe it to something we did um, yeah. so, that, so, that, so we can make sense of it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting you're mentioning sort of these these two choices around, you know, letting kids die or, you know, finding a balance. And I guess, you know, there's that maybe it's naive, but that kind of idealistic third way. And I think we're seeing it in terms of demography across the world. Once um, societies reach a certain level of development and wealth, there's a fall in fertility. And across the developed world, we're, we're really seeing that. And I mean, it's it's causing major sort of potential social disruption, especially in countries that don't allow immigration, like Japan, for instance. And so I think, I think that's kind of the, the eco-modernist promises that you can sort of have it all, right? You, you know, humans can flourish if we apply the right technologies, uh, you know, and deploy them intelligently. We can, you know, maintain the development that we have because there's no, you know, amongst the sort of anti-civilization folks, they kind of think they can throw out the modernity cake, but, you know, eat it too in terms of, you know, all of those benefits, you know, vaccination, um, clean water, you know, just, just the things that we have come to completely take for granted are the product of industrialization and industrialization. It's a dirty word. And when I think about the dark satanic mills, it makes me uncomfortable. It's unnatural. I don't, I don't like it, but I've kind of come to have a more nuanced view of, you know, balancing a humanism with an environmentalism there. Well, it's, you know, so a lot of the, the strict anti-civilization folks that I encounter, the smart, the, the, to sort of steel man, their arguments, one of the things they would say is, well, you wouldn't have needed vaccines if you hadn't had humans packed into close quarters anyway. In other words, high, you know, high rates of infectious disease, plagues, pandemics, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. That's a result of the unnatural activity of humans bunching into urban centers and staying in one place to, you know, cultivate right, crops right, or, right. you know, so if you go back further, all the water really was clean and all of the, which, is, <laughs> which is not true actually, because one of the, I mean, it's interesting if you go back far enough, again, it gets sketchy to try to figure out, you know, when you're doing a, like, what's the etiology of the death of this person 10,000 right, years right. ago, but it seems like, you know, intestinal diseases, especially for kids were, were pretty common. Um, parasites and so and... yeah, parasites and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So that's not true that these things didn't exist, but it is, there is a case to be made that a lot of the problems that we've solved were 
in part, at least problems that emerge out of a natural. Yeah. But, but again, you know, to me, and this is another thing I want to do in the book is that I just don't think these binaries are helpful, simple binaries for analyzing complex problems. I mean, it's just so many, I mean, here we are communicating on a miraculous technology. We have a, we have a, we have a Mars Rover sending back video of a planet. I mean, this is just, it's, how do you, you know, uh, this is something that's frustrated me. So I'm going to go to the sort of comparison to the, you know, indigenous peoples kind of thing. And, and, and a complaint, which I hear a lot is like plant blindness, right? So you walk around your neighborhood and you don't know what the local plants are and you don't mm. know what the animals are. This is knowledge that we've lost. We're so stupid now. And yet all of us know extraordinary things about the human body and about the solar system and the size of the universe that no indigenous person knows they couldn't because they didn't have telescope. Yeah, they didn't know yeah. about the immune system and how it functions. So we actually do know a bunch of really incredible things. And I'm not, I don't want to be in the business of being like, well, are we more or less ignorant than, than pre-industrial peoples or, you know, what's the trade-off for having a Mars Rover? Is it worth having, you know, I don't know. Like I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't believe in that. Uh, the weighty on the moon that. kind of vibe, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Instead, I just feel like what we need to do is say, okay, what are the problems that we want to deal with? Yeah. How do we deal with them? Yeah. And in, in some cases, quote unquote, more natural stuff, whatever that, you know, things that aren't willed by humans or embracing order that wasn't created by humans. Sometimes that's going to be a good, that's going to be mm -hmm. helpful. Sometimes it's not. And I, I, what I really want people to do is just approach the problems that we face on a case by case basis without having a preordained heuristic of natural, good, unnatural, bad problems caused by humans, nature, always great. That is useless to us but in the same way that, you know, but thinking is hard while sort of like <laughs> thinking is hard. Right? We're naturally costly. Like, there's a reason that we love these like super simplistic heuristics, exactly right? Exactly right. We need simple cognitive heuristics to save us mental labor. I understand that yeah, too. Yeah. So, uh, but there's not, but, a, yeah, but, but, there's been times yeah, when there's been a real, I feel like there's been times or, or like in the, the field of science, like it, it really, you know, demands skepticism. It demands that we kind of turn on that, that systems to thinking and, and abandon heuristics, but really, and, and kind of logic and, and reason through things uh, because I really want to respect your time because you're going to get vaccinated. Speaking of technologies, um, I wanted to make sure I cover some other topics with you. Um, because nature is yeah, oh, we're doing okay we're doing okay okay great nature is um something that's really a fundamental part of a, a big disagreement between the eco-modernist community and, and the traditional environmentalist community um both of which really value nature but have really a diff different ideas of how to integrate or re interact with it or, or save it and you know on the on the traditional environmentalist side it's very much about again what we sort of talked about I was calling it Judeo-Christian, but perhaps it's it's more much more broad than that, but sort of atoning for our sins, returning to nature. And on the on the eco-modernist side, it's this idea of concentrating and intensifying human activity, um, embracing the artificial um, to sort of concentrate our, our population, our impact so that we can rewild and kind of allow nature to go back to itself. Um, and they're just, there's such kind of warring visions um you know and, and that would cover things like you know the kind of agroecology movement of no we should we should have humans going out onto the land and creating sort of permaculture farms which in of itself is a really big manipulation of nature um and, and it's just it's just interesting though that that you know these two groups that ostensibly care about the same thing just have such kind of warring and and opposite opinions of it and and you know I, i'm tending to find myself you know, I'm never really comfortable slotting myself into any ideology or religion, but I'm I, I'm attracted by a lot of the ideas from the eco-modernist sphere. But I have to say that, like, you know, the idea of living in a you know crazy hundred-story building packed in like sardines with other people, you know, dystopian sort of like vertical farms powered by nuclear energy, um, you know, it, it it doesn't feel you know homey and and good to me. <laughs> Even though I do think that it's you know it's probably the the best way to try and avoid catastrophe and, and preserve nature. And I, you know, like you, I love that sort of wild untouched nature thing, but what, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? You've written for the breakthrough Institute before. Um, yeah. So I, 
you know, okay, so I, I'm sure listeners and you probably heard of like E.O. Wilson's biophilia hypothesis, which is, is is basically this idea. He thinks that we're, you know, evolved to like nature and natural landscapes. And we we love nature because it's a part of who we are as organisms. So I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know about that. I don't know is what that, 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 that yeah. hypothesis. Yeah, that hypothesis sounds a little bit sketchy. But like I, I've, heard, I've heard that um, like it just in terms of looking at the history of art, like the idea of a natural landscape, like forests used to be like these dark places full of wild animals that would tear you up. You wanted to sort of like in beautiful landscapes were very much sort of pastoral hills. And that sort of changed with the romantic era or. I'm, I am skeptical of the biophilia hypothesis, okay. but I'm not skeptical of a less strong version of it, which is something like what you said, which is just an empirical statement about humans, which is that we like plants and we like animals that are alive and real animals. That is to say, yeah, yeah. not fake animals. And I think we would be sad if we lived in a world of robot animals. And to, and to say that is not to romanticize nature. It's sort of like saying, for example, you know, well, what if we lived in a world in which all paintings were NFTs, right? They're all tech, they're all just replicas, right? We never see original paintings. We put all the original paintings in a basement and then we have a bunch of copies of them in museums. Mm-hmm. Even if we couldn't tell the difference, I think there's still something dystopian about that. And the reason it's dystopian is because human beings, for whatever reason, not biophilia, but for whatever reason, we like being in touch with origins. It's yeah. very very important to us. It's meaningful to us to know where things began. And nature, in part, forget all the weird health claims about it and everything else. We don't even have to get into that. It's just valuable because it represents this kind of origin, this history that we get in touch with, that this is where animals came from. And that, you know, when you go to Yellowstone, and you hear that this is a place that is all, as, as close to its original, you know, <laughs> what it looked like 20,000 years ago as we can get it, that's magical. It's a thing that feels cool and, and special when you're there. And I wouldn't want to deny that as a, a value mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a world that we want to live in in the future. In the same way that I wouldn't want to deny aesthetic beauty, right? So this is the brutalist architects, right? Or whatever, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to go, you know, go to, uh, you know, communist Germany, right? Um, yeah. You can't just take beauty out of the world for the sake of efficiency. Why? Because beauty is important to humans. We like it in the same way natural things and the natural world Mm -hmm, are mm -hmm. important to humans. And we need to provide for that feature of what we value in the same way that we need to provide for the aesthetics. Aesthetics is something that we value. Yeah, I, th- I think the um, the image that accompanies the eco-modernist manifesto is, I think, just on the border of Hong Kong, where you have this like high-rise building next to, I think it's jungle. I might be wrong on on the location. But I think I think there's a the problem is maybe uh, I'm not sure if I'm using the right word here, but like a totalitarian idea of it's got to be, you know, it's, and I think caricatures of eco-modernism are, are kind of what I described before. But surely there's a more um, nuanced way of looking at things and, you know, that there would be like the and again, this kind of sounds funny and, and hubristic to be like, like planning out this imaginary fantasy world of mine. But, you know, that there would be. Um, you know, farms that you would visit more as, uh, you know, working farms, but it would be more something that you'd go on a field trip and visit to get reacquainted with origins, because we've realized that that kind of farming is actually so impactful. Like, it, and it's funny the way that greens um, are horrified by the idea of like lab grown meat, or like, I, I think this concept of uh, yeast brewed milk is incredible. Like if we could get rid of the dairy industry, and just the enormous, you know, ecological impacts that it, that it has, I'm not sure what the kind of energy requirements are, how it balances out. But to me, that's a really attractive idea. And then, yeah, you keep some working dairy farms as a sort of boutique thing that, you know, we can stay in touch with that, that history, but it just seems like eco-modernism when it's kind of caricatured as well, I mean, could have really brutal ideas about indigenous people and their right to sort of traditionally use and occupy their lands. Like, and that, that's a scary idea. I think that's what turns people off a lot. Well, this is, look, I mean, if there's one thing that's the sort of the greens, traditional greens, um, I like this idea. And I talk about it at the end of my book, the idea of mon- monoculture versus polyculture. Yeah, I think one thing, you know, let's take, you know, yeast brew, you know, yeast brewed milk or artificial meat or whatever it happens to be. I think those all have great potential, but it's going to be very different depending on what culture you're going into. Um, so, you know, in Argentina, they're not going to be as pleased with the idea of, you know, beautifully lab grown steaks in part because it's really going to cause a lot of cultural trauma. And, and, and if that were widely adopted, a lot of the identity of Argentinian beef and that sort of thing would go away. Um, yeah. And, and each culture, each, you know, from, from a family on up, but different nations and different cultures have different things that they value. And, 
my vision of a world, of an ideal world and how we relate to nature is one in which we combine our awareness of the impacts that we have and our duty to be responsible when it comes to preserving the natural world. We combine that with a a really nuanced idiosyncratic approach to how we are going to implement a responsible vision in every part of the world. And that means talking to people on the ground and saying, Hey, look, what do you mm-hmm. care about? Um, do you like the idea? You know, what, what are the things that are important to you and what are the things that aren't important to you? And I don't think we're going to have, or I don't want to see a homogeneous monocultured world in terms of how we relate to nature. Um, I think there may be places like Hong Kong, right? Like that picture, there's going to be a wall and there's going to be these super high tech, high Tokyo, you know, whatever it is, that's going to be, in some places. And in other places, it's going to be much, much different. There's going to be much more integration of the of the places where humans are living and the natural world. I would like to see a diversity of ways that we mm-hmm. deal with these questions, depending on the history of different places, um, the, the values of the people that live in those places. And, and I think we can do that, provided that we step back from the very tempting idea that there are, there are just simple ways to do things and some are right and some mm-hmm. are wrong. And that's that, um, you know, and I say that as much for people who hate the idea of lab grown meat, as I do for people that love the idea of lab grown meat. Um, right. you know, it was only what 50 years ago that the vision of the future of food was people pushing buttons Jetson style and right. you know, Thanksgiving dinner would rise out of the middle of the table. And lo and behold, it turns out that once people had enough food, were privileged enough to have enough food, they didn't like that. They, it turns out people like, some people like to cook for themselves. They like to know where their food comes from. Those are just values that people have. So we're having to, to, to rethink in a way our relationship with what ideal food looks like in part because certain aesthetics that we thought we understood, we don't, right? Now people want to brew beer in their basements. You know, I mean, it's, right, right. and that, and so I don't know, I, I, that's a very long winded way of saying that I'm not sure what the future of our relationship with nature is going to look like, but it will entail responsibility and also a nuanced localized approach to what kinds of interventions we, we make. Okay. I wanted to shift gears a little bit to, to talk about how, you know, some of our sort of climate solutions are, are being impacted by this kind of deification of nature, um, how certain doors are being closed and other ones, you know, um, <laughs> held wide open. And one of those is in the area of, of so-called renewable energy. Um, where the properties of the, you know, the natural forces that move a, a weather harvest or, a, you know, a solar panel um, are imbued with the, the same um, qualities as the nature from which, you know, the energy flows emerge, right? And, and there's a great quote from uh, Vaclav Smil, um, recently kind of made famous because he's Bill Gates' favorite um, writer on these issues. But, um, you know, he talks about, he's like, when I look at a windmill, I see like the embodi- embodiment of fossil fuels, um, you know, large trucks bringing steel and cement to the site, fossil fuel powered excavators and cranes, um, you know, and the sheer volume of, of man-made materials that were required, um, you know, for a hundred megawatt wind farm, uh, 30,000 tons of iron ore, 50,000 tons of concrete, 900 tons of 900 tons of like fossil fuel derived plastics yet. Um, you know, I, I've heard sort of renewable energy kind of referred to as like the, the greatest sort of marketing effort in history, which maybe is a bit of an exaggeration. I'm sure you could find other examples, but you know, like when I, when I used to drive through, like we have a lot of wind farms just North of where I live. When I used to drive through there, I used to be like, like kind of cringe, but I was like, but this is what we need to, to beat the climate crisis. So I'm just gonna have to put up with it. Um, but I mean, these are industrialized landscapes. This is a real escape from nature. I was watching a video of a murmuration of starlings off the Friesland coast in uh, the Netherlands on, it was online. Right. But, and I was just imagining like, what would that environment look like with a bunch of windmills in it? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just, I just find that to be a very interesting, interesting phenomenon and that the choices around our energy solutions are being made more around you know, this appeal to nature fallacy, then again, a, what you're advocating for, which I think is like, a, like, what's the goal? What are the best tools to arrive at it? Let's stop relying on a stupid that's, fucking heuristic. That's exactly right. So I mean, with, with, with renewables, it's great. It's solar, it's solar and wind. I couldn't agree more, which is that I think our ability to objectively weigh the benefits and costs of those technologies is interfered with by the conflation of the technology itself 
with the thing that's power. You know, the sun is not actually what solar energy is. These are, you know, you're using certain metals that need to be mined to make these panels that need to be disposed of when they get thrown away. Things that I, I, I really think what people are imagining is just the sun beating down on a, on a plant leaf and yeah, spontaneously yeah. creating energy. So, that, so that's bad, right? What we really need to ask was we need to be able to ask in an unbiased way, what's, what are the costs and benefits of this? Now, interestingly, when I was in Japan, this is something that didn't come up in the book, but I was visiting Fukushima, the area around Fukushima, mm, and interviewing yeah. people about their perspective on nuclear energy. And there was this one guy, sort of a wealthier guy, who had installed a fairly large set of solar panels on his own property. So by not industrial, but enough mm. to power his, his home and also the sake operation that he was running there. So he had this, he grew his own rice and made his own sake. So I and it was, him, is Fukushima sake or? You know what I mean? Was it, is it, was it, it's grown in the prefecture? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. And so, and so I was asking him, you know, why did you install these solar panels? And what I expected was a diatribe about nuclear energy and how bad nuclear energy is and how unnatural it is and how natural energy is better. And that was not what he said at all. The reason he installed the solar panels was because he liked to know that he had control over his own energy and it wasn't the government. And what came out that for him, the relevant consideration with nuclear energy was that nuclear energy is necessarily top down Mm -hmm. from a government that he doesn't trust in places that he can't investigate. He said, come with me. Look, you can walk right up to the solar panels. And what was fascinating (laughs) to me was that, that this is a value I'd never thought of, which is the extent to which people feel like they control their own source of energy. And that's really important. The feeling of autonomy, of self-sufficiency, of not being you know, in the thrall of a government that you don't trust is just something that never crossed my mind mm-hmm, when it came mm-hmm. to what kind of energy we want. Now, I'm not saying that should be the value that we insert, but again, getting outside of the natural-unnatural dichotomy allows us to see all of these other factors that we mm-hmm. might not otherwise see and, and wait adequately when we're stuck in that binary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, this, this guy's Saki operation and, and his house, obviously it's feeding off the sun during the day, but there's nighttime and clouds and the Japanese grid, since they've shut down nuclear is relying much more on, on gas and coal. So, I mean, that's, that's, I think I would love to be able to just kind of fall into the the grand narrative and, you know, believe the hype. And I, w- I wish it was true. I wish that, you know, solar panels were incredibly sure. power dense and we could just put them on our rooftops and not industrialized landscapes. But, you know, in terms of deep diving this issue, I, I have really arrived at the importance of the need for nuclear energy. And it does conflict with those sort of postmodern narratives, right, of wanting control and distrust of progress yep. and large institutions and things like that. But it, it is interesting how... Um, you know, humans are very comfortable with combustion. It's, it's natural, right? Um, we only evolved our big brains and short guts um, because we could process food that way in an unnatural way, I guess, right? And you talk about these raw foodies and things like that. But um, what we're uncomfortable with, with things we perceive as unnatural, like, like fishing. And, and I think, I mean, there's, you know, these really exaggerated fears of, of radiation, where when you look at the UN reports on the nuclear you know, accidents. So I'm going to call them accidents because a catastrophe kills a lot of people. And anyway, um, you know, and, and fears about, you know, nuclear waste um, that as again, has never is stored nuclear civilian nuclear waste has never actually killed anyone in the history of it. Anyway. So these, these kind of fears and concerns based on unnaturalness are leading us to really abandon a technology, which I really view as, as a keystone element of our, of our climate response. And I mean, the IPCC views it that way as well, but traditional environmentalists with their narratives around, around nature, you know, really reject nuclear energy. I'm not sure. I don't think I, I saw that really talked about much in your book, but do you have any? No, I didn't, I didn't want to talk about nuclear in part because it was such a hot button topic, but fair, I will fair. say, I will say, well, no, I mean, it's an important topic though. And I, what I would say, this is something else I've been bringing up a lot. Cause I, I mean, I think it's increasingly important. I think about it with vaccines right now as well. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a term from a, from, philosophy of technology and history of technology called epistemic opacity. And what this term means basically is that when something is epistemically opaque, you don't know how it works. So the epi- epi- epistemic, epistemic, what does that mean? Sorry. That's just like theory of knowledge. So okay. it applies to knowledge. So opaque okay. to your knowledge. So epistemic okay. opacity, what that means is let's say I look at my iPhone. It's epistemically opaque to me. I can't take it apart. If I did take it apart, I wouldn't know how it works. Yeah. There's just nothing that's totally opaque to me. 
And you hear this contrasted sometimes, often with the same sort of romanticize the old farm, right? Which is like, well, back in the day, I could fix my tractor myself, right? Like yeah, I opened yeah. it up and I knew exactly how it worked. There was a gear here and a gear there and that's that, right? So that, and that's epistemically transparent. And yeah, I think that yeah. as technology becomes a bigger and bigger part of our lives and as technology increasingly advances, more and more of our world is epistemically opaque to us. We don't know where our food comes from. It's impossible to understand the, the chain that, that yeah, gets yeah. foods to us or even the farms on which they're produced, which is why it's so dystopian when Michael Pollan's like, let me take you to the lettuce washing facility where 1 million tons of lettuce are washed you know, by these machines. That's all very opaque to us. And epistemic opacity is scary. It's disempowering and it's alienating. And so yeah. a lot of what I think is going on with the desire for naturalness is the desire for at least the illusion of epistemic transparency with a mm. nuclear power plant. No one has, you know, no one knows what the hell is going on in there. Well, especially or, because, you know, I was talking to a French expert and they were saying up until the nineties, every high school class would tour a nuclear plant. Right. Yeah, and well, so that's it a, was, yeah, that's an important and the thing. acceptance of nuclear energy was much yeah. different then. And, you know, the energy literacy was much different then. there's, there's a recent, yeah. um, a recent poll that says that the majority of people under 30 years old believe that nuclear kind of contributes as much CO2 to the atmosphere as yeah. gas or coal. Right. And, you know, and, and I think you, you, you took them behind the this is something I talked about. Um, I mean, I wrote a, I wrote an article along with another woman who's a sociologist, Jennifer Reich, who's va expert on vaccine refusal and reluctance. Right. We wrote this in April 2020. We were like, look, these mRNA vaccines. Mm -hmm. They're more epistemically opaque. I mean, we didn't use that term, but like that's what, that's sure. what we're saying. They're sure, more sure. opaque, epistemically opaque to people than other vaccines. So there's going to be increased reluctance and people are going to use analogies to technology and unnaturalness to make them scary. And lo and behold, Boom. what are people saying? They're like, it's reprogramming. Your, this isn't a normal vaccine. It's reprogramming your DNA. Notice the technological metaphor. So there's this already a kind of paranoia about a, a, a world of opaque technologies and that mm. vaccine slotted neatly into those fears. And it's a big problem. It is a big problem. You've got guys like Alex Berenson, who's, you know, ostensibly knows what he should know what he's talking about, talking about how these vaccines are very different from other vaccines. And to the extent that they're different in the sense that he doesn't understand them as well, that's true. You know, maybe people don't understand them as well. And that makes them different. That doesn't make them more dangerous, mm -hmm, but it mm -hmm. does make them feel more dangerous and they participate in the same kind of feeling of danger that attaches to all technologies that emerge and are epistemically opaque. Now, I just want to say one more thing about this though, which is that people defend that reflexive uh, paranoia. So someone like Taleb likes to talk in this way with something Taleb like- Taleb Nassim. Yeah, Nassim yeah, Taleb. Um, okay. Like the precautionary principle. So they'll yeah, say, well, the yeah. reason we're scared of things that are epistemically opaque is that they haven't been around for very long. And transparency comes with being time tested. And nature right. is the ultimate laboratory of time testing things. So we know that what's natural is better or safer simply because it's been around for longer. Mm -hmm. it, after all, you know, it made all the systems, it organized all the systems. So I hear that kind of argument. And, you know, it's sort of true, but it's also sort of not true um, because there are plenty of things that, that are new. <laughs> Uh, you know, we're innovating all the time. And to the extent that grinding that innovation to a standstill would represent the obvious sort of embodiment of the precautionary principle, that would be ridiculous. Instead, what we do is we take the knowledge that we have and carefully construct new things that we believe are safe based on prior knowledge. That's the illusion with the, something like the vaccine, right? So people are like, oh, it's this totally new thing. We don't know anything about it. Or with genetically modifying vegetables, right? It's this yeah. whole new way of modifying vegetables. Like, how can we know if they're not going to turn into monsters? And it's like, well, the answer is that we understand how the technology works. It's yeah. like if we have a new new kind of transplant technology, it's not like we don't know whether that transplant is going to turn into an eggplant inside the human's body because we actually know how <laughs> organs work. We have prior knowledge. Yeah. It yeah. actually isn't just some sui generis technology that we don't know anything about. And so dialing people back from that understanding of what a new novel technology is and allowing people to see that it's part of a long chain of knowledge that isn't necessarily... Care, like carelessness is carelessness. It's not novel technology. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. you can introduce an invasive species or a disease like with the American chestnut, right? We, we, we blew that species away, not with a new technology, but just by not being careful um, mm -hmm. with bringing in a blight that affected the trees. Um, so it's, we confuse novel technology with lack of care. Yeah. And that's, that's just the technology we, or that's a confusion that we shouldn't make. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there is an interesting uh, triad. I think trifecta is probably the wrong word, but you know, there's a lot of overlap between the argumentation of the sort of anti-vax, anti-genetic engineering, anti-nuclear groups. Like, you know, those of us involved in advocacy and looking at these issues, we're like, oh my god, I've seen that argument before, right? And exactly, these kind of appeals to emotion. It's interesting on the on the genetic engineering front and on the precautionary principle front. Like, you know, like the kiwi. Um, you know, as an emergency physician, I see a lot of severe uh, allergic reactions. Um, the peanut, you know, these are things that these are natural foods that have an incidence of causing a severe life-threatening um, medical illness um, that would never be tolerated in terms of the the genetically engineered f- f- uh, foods and the sort of testing that they undergo. So it's, and I guess, you know, so you could say similar things about, you know, when you do empiric studies of comparing energy sources and sort of deaths per terawatt hour, you know, nuclear is you know, depends how you look at people falling off of roofs, installing solar panels and stuff like that and, and factoring a few other issues. But, you know, it's unambiguous that nuclear is almost, you know, it's, it's at the bottom and there's a really, it's probably the safest form of energy, but that requires, you know, not appeals to emotion. It requires actually looking at, at data and evidence. And I just, I really do wonder, you know, whether, whether we're kind of lost because it feels like there's a kind of decadence that sets in once a society gets to a certain level of development and satisfies its material needs. And I think we're seeing that in the U S and in, in Canada and Europe with, you know, a growing sort of anti-vax sentiment, um, that I think is, is really absent from a lot of areas in the developing world. Um, and where there's really markedly different attitudes towards technology, um, you know, I was talking with a, um, a friend of mine who, who does a lot of energy work overseas. And, and I was like, what's, you know, what's the big difference you see between the youth and in, in the developing world and the developed world? And he's like, they're so goddamn optimistic, like they're struggling. It's a hard environment, but they're optimistic and they have a lot of faith in technology. And, and then you, you, you come to the north and you see a lot of depressed, anxious kids that are, you know, kind of have the opposite the opposite stake. And I, I don't know if from writing your books that it's not really your role to sort of prescribe a, a solution to some of these issues that you're seeing, but like, how, how are you educating your, your, you have a child, right? Like how, yeah. Yeah. What do you hope for them in terms of helping them understand the world? For me, I'm like, he's got to understand correlation versus causation. He's got to understand relative risks. That's my, like. so, so for me, when I educate my daughter, I think about this a lot. Like, what do I want to impress upon my daughter? I, I really want her to embrace, and maybe this isn't the best way to make people happy, but I actually think it is. Mm-hmm. I want her to understand complexity and uncertainty. And I want her, if there's one intellectual virtue that I want my daughter to have, is it's the ability to admit when she doesn't know something and the mm-hmm. ability to admit when she gets something wrong. Those are the two things I'm relentless. I'm a terrible parent in this way, right? I mean, it's just like, <laughs> I'm yeah. too over the top, but it's like when she gets something wrong, celebrate it. And then she doesn't want to admit that she got it wrong uh, or yeah. she got, you know, and I'm like, no, you just own it. Just own that. You got something. It's cool. It's fine. What's not cool is not accepting that you got something wrong. And if you don't know something, don't pretend that you do say, I don't know. I want to learn more. I mean, we've nice. gotten a lot yeah. of the low hanging fruit in, in a lot of the aspects of our, of a human, you know, the desires that humans have, we've, we've, we've gotten a lot of those. So we figured out smoking, right? Well, so unfortunately, Unfortunately, some of our other problems are not so simple and the, you know, how we're going to organize the world in terms of our technology is not simple. And I think that we're really going to need to emphasize in a way that we haven't before our ability to live with uncertainty and to talk with other people and to resolve it through dialogue and learning from other people and embracing complexity. So for me, a lot of the anxiety, I think that people are experiencing right now, especially in the developed world where we don't have to be anxious about where our food comes from or, you know, war or whatever. Um, a lot of the anxiety comes from uncertainty and mm. not being able to, to live with uncertainty and, and rest in uncertainty. And so I want, I want people to be more comfortable with those things. And I think that would help people be happier um, to recognize that they don't know the answers and to have that not be something that you need to overcome with a simple heuristic but something that becomes your own heuristic that, that, mm-hmm. that, that just saying, I don't know, I don't know what it is. I'm going to try to learn more um, yeah, and, and, yeah. and, and call it a day. So that's for me, something really important. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think something that feeds off of that very closely and now we're kind of turning into a parenting podcast, but I don't care <laughs> is, uh, you know, just embracing mistakes, like that it's okay to make a mistake, that it's, it's a learning opportunity of itself. Cause there's, I just find kids these days are just, 
you know, and I'm exposed to a lot of, uh, you know, medical students and, you know, they just they have had to sort of try and be perfect and conform to tests and get 99.9% on, on everything. And the idea of making a mistake is absolutely terrifying, but it's the only way that we grow and we experiment and, and try new things. So, yeah. And like you said, we should celebrate it. This is a problem with politicians. It's a problem with environmentalists. It's a mm. problem with tech activists is that you get locked in, um, and there's a, there's a technical term for this uh, in medical diagnoses where you have an original medical diagnosis and then that ends up with anchoring bias. That's not yeah. just medical diagnosis. Yeah, premature closure, anchoring yeah. bias. So yeah. like anchoring bias is really is a big problem. And part of that anchoring bias happens because we punish people for changing their minds publicly. It's yeah. like, oh, you're a flip-flopper. Yeah. Oh, you used to be in favor of this and now you're against it. It's like, no, that's great. That's what I want to see. If I see someone who's never changed their mind over 30 years, they have these two simple principles for how to live life. <laughs> it's like, yeah. that's when I start to think to myself, hmm. I don't know about that. Um, maybe maybe something's wrong with your thinking. Uh, that's yeah, another thing. Flexibility, I think, is really important. It's it's really interesting. Um, you know, I've, I'm a, a a big fan of the kind of principled, um, very rare that you find, but principled politicians that that take a strong progressive stance. So you know, Bernie Sanders is is someone that I struggle to support because of one thing, which is, you know, he's, he's maintained these, um, these kind of pure ideologic principles that most of which I find really compelling and agree with, but on his ideas around um, energy and the environment, he's just been incapable of, of adapting and changing his mind. And I think that's what I've found really inspiring about figures like Stuart Brand or Mark Linus, um, you know, are people who are genuinely curious about the world. I mean, Stuart Brand um, was sort of a student of, um, got the population bomb guy, right? Paul Ehrlich, um, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and led these kind of anti-population rallies. And I mean, these, this led to horrible, you know, sterilization campaigns in India, you know, pattern the world in some pretty terrible ways. Uh, but, you know, he's someone who's, who's really been flexible and, and changed his mind a lot, but as you're right, I mean, in, in politics, you don't, you don't survive that way. Um, you know, like you said, I mean, that was the John Kerry flip-flopper uh, thing that kind of was part of sinking yeah. his campaign. Right. I, I, I mean, I've experienced this and now we're getting away from the technology stuff, but I think it's, I think it's important as a broader principle. And maybe this is one of the things, you know, this is how I end the book. Um, but as a broader principle is that uncertainty is, is necessarily, it's the default. It's how we've made progress is through embracing uncertainty and correcting ourselves. And if mm. we want to think about something that's central to the scientific method, really. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's actually a sort of institutionalized uncertainty about everything. Right. Yeah, That's it. Yeah. You know, um, and this is something I think that vaccine skeptics and GM skeptics don't don't really understand. I mean, obviously, scientific institutions are, you know, they're made out of humans. And so humans have their own anchoring biases and that they have, you know, I don't want my study overturned. But at the end of the day, you'd win a Nobel Prize if you could prove that evolution was false. And you would be you'd be the most decorated science in the you know, scientist in the world if you could actually show that vaccines were harming people. Mm -hmm. it, it, that would be enormously influential. You know, the reason we needed to institutionalize it, I think, is in part because humans naturally are so averse to it. Right. Um, right. But, but it's something that we need to become comfortable with. I mean, one of the things, again, to talk about this in contemporary context, the pandemic was so freaky for people because science did something. And again, historians of science call it, they call it backstage front stage. So they were saying basically between yeah. the you know beginning of the 20th century to now, science moved from backstage to front stage. And when mm -hmm. it was on the backstage, it was just a bunch of people in a room. No one ever saw them. And then they would come out with a statement from their institution about what the truth was. Now people are watching what science looks like in real time. Yeah. And it's not that science has changed. People have always been debating things and having ferocious battles and coming up with different kinds of evidence. But it wasn't public in that way. And I don't, I'm not saying that's bad. Transparency is a wonderful thing, but we're suffering psychologically because now everyone's being forced to live the uncertainty that once only belonged to a particular kind of profession, right? right I mean, it's right. sort of like, now that we're surrounded by food, we're all forced to be monastics, denying but you're, we're, li we're living that want, we're living that uncertainty. But I think we also deify science. Um, and you talk about how Absolutely. nature is nature is kind of a mercenary that can be deployed for any argument. And as is you know science, you can find studies by outliers with maybe really terrible methodology that you know like the Wakefield study on vaccination. So, I mean that's that's a really really tricky thing about this all. Like as as you said, coming on onto the front stage because it used to be sort of okay, we've got all these studies, let's get a consensus committee to look at them. Okay, we'll come to the public now with this recommendation. But now you know anyone can quote a, a pre-printed study that's not been peer reviewed, and unfortunately, the way social media works, people don't read in depth. And you know, well, I agree with that title. Yeah, 
The problem's the deification, right? This is yeah. again the the problem. Science is great, but you can't deify science. You can't, first of all, you shouldn't read it. Science is not a book of facts, right? It's not like the big yeah, book of science yeah. facts and you open it and follow the science. For, you know, it's like not a choose your own adventure. It's, yeah. it's, it's a method. Yeah. And, and in that sense, it's resist, should be internally resistant to, to that sort of deification. Um, yeah. And yet, you know, we need that. We need yeah, I'm thinking about like, you know, Extinction Rebellion or, or Greta Thunberg or others, who, you know, we follow the science, right? But it's, uh, again, it, it tends to, follow the convenient science often right yep. um anyway i think that's that's probably a, a great place to leave it it's been a real pleasure talking with you Am. yeah thanks so much for having me on great conversation sure. i really for enjoyed sure. it all right well uh what are you working on right now just for our listeners uh is another book coming out soon or what, what projects do you have on the go Believe it or not, this is the first time I guess I'll talk about this in public, but like I've been working on, uh, I, I, I stepped away from, I know, right? Scoop. Breaking news. Uh, I stepped away from, I've stepped away from Twitter for a while and I also stepped away. I just finished a big article for Vice about um, uncertainty, uh, medically uh, medically unexplained symptoms and, okay. and, uh, and long COVID. But I'm now stepping away from that. I'm working on a young adult book about uh, a fiction book. So you're asking about kids and it's a book about a young girl who discovers she can hear plants and they are plotting to kill off humans because humans are putting the world out of balance. And so she has to go on a trip uh, to speak with the plant leaders um, and try to convince them not to do this, find out about the plant and, 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 and convince them not to do it. And so it's for me at least, a way of working out exactly the kind of stuff that you're talking about, the sort of, it's all humans fault. Um, humans are bad. They're like an infection. It's a disease. Nature is healing right. out of that. You know um, well, how do we deal with that? How do we, how do we reconcile, you know, our love of humanity and our love of the natural world and the obvious love that humans have for it with this also this, I think pessimistic sense that we have that we've just ruined everything and there's nothing there's no, like humans themselves are the disease. And the best thing we could do is just, you know, kill off, nine tenths of human humanity mm -hmm. so that we can just reset and go back to the natural world where everything was great. So yeah. that's, that's the next project. And this, the audience is young adults, you said, or from what do they always say from 10 to from 10 to a hundred, but yeah, it's going <laughs> to be, be target. It's I, I'd like it to be, I'd like it to be something that, you know, a 12 year old could read. Um, cool. Cool. Yeah. All so right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll look out for it. Um, and yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm eager to find another excuse to, to get you back one day. So thanks again for agreeing to Absolutely. come. Absolutely. I'm really happy to be on. Take awesome. care. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.